Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And I'm Joe Jordan. And today on the program, why our emotional and physical health is tied to healthy waterways. Dr. Wallace J. Nichols is a best-selling author of the book, Blue Mind, Your Brain on Water. And he's working on a new book, Live Blue, about how we can improve our well-being and health by caring for the blue part of our planet. We'll connect with him in just a moment. And if you would like to join the conversation or ask Jay a question, you can contact us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. That's radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. Woohoo! And we just love that theme song so much you can't even get that's away the, from uh, running. That's the Jupiter track of <laughs> Gustav Holst's The Planets. <laughs> that's right. It will never go away. <laughs> And we would like to remind you also that if you'd like to support Planet Watch and our effort, which has been successful thus far, to spread it throughout the planet, so far we're on three stations, one in North Carolina, shout out to WCOM listeners, one in Columbus, Ohio, and a shout out to WGRN listeners, and here at our home station here in Santa Cruz, California on KSCO AM 1080. We'd like to say thank you to all of our patrons on Patreon. And if you'd like to join them in supporting this program and our efforts to get it out further, you can go to patreon.com slash planetwatch. Again, patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com, planetwatch. And check us out there. And you can pay $2 a month and get our podcast. And if you pay enough, you get Joe Jordan in your backyard teaching you about stars. So that's pretty pretty cool gift. And I'll even come along and do a campfire sing-along. So if you'd like to get involved with that, uh, there you go. We're so excited to um, have Tommy Martin here with us with a couple of news stories. And then we'll also have a story for you um, about what's going on all over the place. A brand new story um, helping us understand behaviors about the environment. We'll take a look at one of those in just a moment. But Tommy, what do you got for us today? Yeah, we got two stories today. Um, the Washington Post reported that President Trump's decision to shrink the uranium-rich Bear Ears Monument by 85% was lobbied for by a uranium company, Energy Fuels Resources, the only op- operational uranium mining company in the U.S. This company hired a team of lobbyists led by Andrew Wheeler, who is awaiting Senate confirmation as the EPA's deputy secretary. Three lawsuits have been filed by Native American tribes, conservative groups, our conservation groups, and even retailer Patagonia to stop the shrinking of the monument. The Navajo Nation, which has a reservation near Bears Ears, has experienced the negative effects of uranium mines with hundreds of Superfund sites still not cleaned up near or on their reservation. Also this week, China is turning to nuclear power in an attempt to heat its urban populations during cold winter months. State-owned China National Nuclear Corporation recently conducted a successful 168-hour trial run in Beijing for a small district heating reactor. As China switches away from coal and faces natural gas shortages, the company is presenting these 400-megawatt reactors as an alternative. Capable of powering 200,000 urban households, these Olympic swimming pool-sized reactors are expected to be safer than conventional models as temperatures don't exceed 100 degrees Celsius. Okay, so these are somehow kinder, gentler nuclear power plants. One little technical note there. He said a a small district heating reactor. Actually, district heating isn't uh, so much a feature of the reactor as the infrastructure that's put in place throughout the community to heat the community. It's commonly used in Europe and like Iceland uses it to take the geothermal heat from its geysers uh, to to towns uh, through networks of pipes. That's called district heating. We don't use it so much in this country. but uh, So the reactor is just doing its reactor thing and then the heat that it generates is distributed through the pipes to the community. Thanks for that clarification. I was wondering. And it sounds like from what he said, they're using less uh, uranium than a normal plant, um, which could be good. If you're using it at all, there's some serious problems with storage and waste, regardless of how much you're using. Yeah, which also relates to that first story Tommy read, where they're screwing up this wonderful Bears Ears National Monument. And for what? I mean, you know, if they were mining peace and love and something good like that, I could see maybe shrinking the area of the National Monument. You could find this stuff elsewhere. But but no, they're... they're, they're uh, 
shrinking the monument to to be able to mine uranium, which is like the most most pathetic path towards our future that you can think of almost. But you can see that it's going to have a use considering there's all these nuclear plants that they're planning on building. There's actually another nuclear plant that is being planned in Egypt that Russia is going to build too. The Not word so use was used when it was announced that they were shrinking the monument and um, there was something said um, that, that Utah people know how to use their land. And I just find the word use kind of problematic when it comes to monuments, things we have set aside under the Antiquities Act, which should have been sacrosanct. And there, that's where the lawsuits come in, is whether or not you can renege on your promise to forever protect something uh, when the new guy comes into office. Speaking there, of yeah. lawsuits, <laughs> uh, well, by the way, we have nuclear a nuclear plant that we should all be using. It's that giant wireless fusion reactor 93 million miles away up in the sky. That that provides us way more than all the energy we could possibly ever need. But uh, And we just need to get that good old ingenuity going again to really figure out how to harness that economically and get on with it. <laughs> but Indeed. Well, here's an interesting story I wanted to share today. It appears uh, that composting is a gateway drug to other environmentally friendly behaviors, such as taking shorter showers and recycling. A new study out of Ohio State University revealed that people are more likely to add on positive behaviors once they start doing one thing new. By studying a food waste composting pro program in Costa Mesa, California, scientists explored a concept called spillover. It's a pattern of new behavior, like composting food waste, and it leads them to adopt other related positive activities. The researchers asked participants about three food waste prevention behaviors, including planning meals before shopping, and they asked about seven energy and water waste prevention behaviors, including taking shorter showers and unplugging electronics when they're not in use. And they found that those who began composting food waste, for example, also engaged in more efforts to conserve water and energy compared to those who did not compost. Spillover, however, can work both ways. For example, if you start littering, it could mean you start becoming more irresponsible in other parts of your life. Uh, so it really uh, depends on which direction you start the ball rolling. The study was part of a larger examination of how citywide composting programs could create larger changes in behavior. Hmm, so that's a good slippery slope. <laughs> yes. Spill over in the best sense of the word and you start doing one good thing and it makes you feel good about yourself and that leads to other better behaviors. Hmm. And then uh, I've got a story we were talking about lawsuits a minute ago. This, this one is the big one. Uh, it's reaching a showdown tomorrow in San Francisco, Monday, December 11th. There's going to be a huge rally up there and any Folks in the region who are listening might want to try to, you know, snag a carpool or a bus or whatever and go up there. Uh, it's Our Children's Trust. Kids' lawsuit over climate change faces big test in federal court. The fate of what some legal observers are calling the most important environmental case in the country and even the biggest case on the planet now rests with three federal appellate court judges. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, that's in San Francisco, will hear oral arguments December 11th, tomorrow, Monday, and weigh whether a novel climate change lawsuit, Juliana versus United States, should continue or move forward. If ultimately successful, this litigation brought in 2015 by 21 youth plaintiffs, ranging in age from 10 to 21, could force the government to develop a comprehensive plan to reduce greenhouse gas emissions across multiple sectors. And uh, the idea that they have is that by proactively trashing our environment, the federal government is depriving these young people of the environmental resources to which they are entitled by the Constitution. You know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and property and all the other things that the federal government's supposed to be in charge of for us and for our future. The young people are arguing that uh, they are being ripped off by the government and the government needs to clean up its act and or pay. And so this is going to be huge. It's, it's getting standing and uh, the Trump administration is trying to do an end run around the scheduled hearing in February and and prematurely 
going above the uh, the court that's supposed to rule on this and saying, hey, cut this off right now uh, so that it can't uh, go forward. And so that's what uh, the three judges tomorrow will be deciding on, is whether it's just going to be allowed to run the normal course that's been set for quite a while, or if they're going to somehow nip it in the bud through some machinations right now. So stay tuned. <laughs> we'll have more to report on this tomorrow, or next week, sorry. Next, Indeed next week. we will. Thank you for that, Joe. Well, we're very excited to have Jay, Wallace J. Nichols. We're going to call him Jay today. He is formerly a senior scientist at the Ocean Conservancy. He holds a degree from DePaul University in biology and Spanish and a MEM, which I assume is a kind of a master's degree. And you'll tell me whether that I'm right about that <laughs> in just a moment. Um, but uh, he holds a degree in natural resource economics and policy from Duke and a PhD in wildlife ecology and evolutionary biology from the University of Arizona. Jay is currently a senior fellow at the Middlebury Institute for International Studies Center for the Blue Economy, a research associate at the California Academy of Sci Sciences, and a co-founder of Ocean Revolution. He's not a big busy guy. Um, if he were, he would be here in person. Oh, he is. We so appreciate you taking the time, Jay. Thanks. My pleasure. Thanks for yeah. being here. So what is Blue Mind? You, you came up with this idea. You were studying turtles. How did you cross from um, chasing sea turtles around the world and studying their lives to looking at this bigger picture? But I, I fell in love with sea turtles at a pretty young age, and that sort of set the course of big chunk of my life to become a marine biologist and uh, to use use my time and energy to help bring sea turtles back from the, the edge, the brink of extinction. And we're taught as we get educated to keep the emotional part out of the conversation. Check, check that part at the door. Out of science. Uh, yeah, out of our science. Mm -hmm. uh, which I understand, um, but I also understood that it was the it was those emotions were the reason why I became a scientist in the first place, and I wanted to understand that better. And as I looked around and talked to my colleagues, I realized that most of them had a similar story about their emotional connection that led them down a path that probably involved their education and, and their desire to become a scientist and a conservationist, environmentalist, and and so. I was curious about, so had anybody written a book about falling in love with water and how that may just get under your skin, so to speak, and lead you uh, to a, a life of advocacy and hard work on behalf of the wild places. And I couldn't really find what I was looking for in the library or in the bookstores. So I tried to convince other folks that they should, they should take that task on and write a book like that. And I, I failed at that. And so I ended up writing it myself. And in order to write it, I needed to research it. So essentially, it was like getting another PhD, um, hanging out with neuroscientists and psychologists, convening conferences, asking them questions and writing down what they said. And then that basically turned into this book called Blue Mind. So, And it's really a confluence of two very cutting-edge fields. I was just listening on the way over to uh, that show about the TED Talks. And... It was all about neurobiology and plasticity of neurons in your brain and how, you know, even after a stroke, you can come back possibly with a new personality. Right. There's just all kinds of new cutting-edge stuff we're learning about the brain. And the ocean, of course, is this complete mystery that is out of sight most of the time. And so people don't know what's under there unless, like Sylvia Earle, you go down there. Right. And there is more being learned about that. And as we learn more, we learn that it's not infinite and we can impact it in so many ways negatively as humans. Right, so these two massive realms, one studying the watery parts of our planet and one studying the, the, our brains. So neuroscience and, and biology have both taken these huge leaps forward in our lifetimes in terms of you know, scientific revolutions and the technology available to study the deep ocean and the deep brain uh, now opens all these new doors. And what I've done is take these two realms and kind of smash them together and said, what if we, what if we get into the room together? What can we learn uh, about our brain on water, our brain on ocean? Why is it that you know, going down to the water and going for a swim or a surf or a paddle or just a walk on the beach really does hit that big reset button. Everybody here in Santa Cruz certainly knows that either directly or indirectly. A, a person you, you care about um, may 
use the ocean therapeutically that helps them get through the day, helps keep keep the balance in your home, perhaps. Um, so I wanted to know more about that and sort of asking a different set of questions, really. Which is pretty mavericky yeah. <laughs> to not use that word. But, um, you know, to come up with a new field um, must have at first raised some eyebrows and now it's a bestseller, right? And it's second printing or whatever. Yeah, uh, it was, I mean, you know, you write a proposal and you send it around to the... the uh, familiar suspects, the foundations for support, and you get a lot of no's. Think, wait, who are you? You're a, you're a turtle biologist. Why are you sending us a proposal about neuroscience and, and the ocean? Um, but that didn't stop us. You know, we you get you get a bunch of no's, and you keep going. Right? I think that's that's something you learn uh, or you don't learn, I guess. But uh, persistence. When you know a good idea that needs to be in the hands of basically everyone, um, you just keep working working towards it and um, building building momentum and building movement, I guess you could say, uh, around this idea that water, you know, water is medicine. Water is good for us, not only hygiene and hydration. It also gives us things like liberty and happiness, two big concepts that, you know, are, are near and dear uh, to the hearts of, of most people. And uh, it's a, it, it really does. It's, it's a resource in that capacity as well. And, you know, kind of a kind of a whimsical philosophical twist on some of that. Uh, you know, our ancient ancestors evolutionarily were in the trees, and humans having a, a real affinity for trees and forests mm -hmm. too. And then our really ancient ancestors, way back <laughs> before that, you know, crawled out of, crawled out of the ocean That's basically. Right. So it's in our genes, but but also uh, water, of course, is what eighty percent of our body weight is water, so we are water, so there you go. And then another little thing just to sort of remind everybody of, uh, we're talking about planet watch and, you know, the blue parts of our planet. Well, the planet is what, three quarters uh, oceans, right? water. Uh, most of the water on the ocean, uh, on the planet is, uh, is salt water in the oceans, but uh, some small fraction is, is fresh water, which is what we, uh, you know, we need to use. Uh, but so, uh, yeah, we're immersed in the stuff, and uh, so that's uh, just something to kind of keep in blue mind. <laughs> yeah, and it, so that's really the, you know, the, the first scientific piece of this conversation is if, if you don't have water, you're not going to get through the week. And so the ability to position ourselves correctly, safely, relative to water, uh, have an emotional response to a view, perhaps, that says... To your brain, you're in the right place, or you're in the wrong place. You should back off. You know, you might get washed away, or while well, this feels a little too dry, you need to go on a little walkabout until you find the right spot. That's a something that all animals need to be able to do. So it's no surprise that we have this capacity as well. Now we're we're pretty used to the idea that really in our our modern uh, existence, we're never more than a few steps away from a knob that we can turn and have water come out of it. You know, just if you, unless you go on a big long hike uh, like you're about to do this afternoon, uh, you're most of the time you're pretty close to some some source of water. But that wasn't always the case, you know, in, our, in the hum, human experience. So, so are you saying we evolved to be very hyper aware of water because it was? needing to be close by within a short distance so yeah, we could survive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you here's an interesting thing. If do a search for how do animals find water and you will find not much. There's not much research on on how do animals find the water. They clearly do. Some animals get their water from their food, but some have to actually go find a body of water and and have a drink. There isn't a lot of research on how, on water finding behavior. But we need to be able to identify water um, as something different from every other surface, from the plants, from the rocks, uh, from the dirt, from the sky. We need to be able to see it, know that it's water, or hear it, and identify it, and move ourselves towards it, and, and position ourselves safely. Or we just don't survive the week. And that's true for, for all kinds of life. So that we have this innate... Um, sense that it's beautiful i would i would call it uh you know we we have uh, the water aesthetic you look out and say that's beautiful i'm in the right place 
this is where I'm gonna this is where I'm gonna call home it kind of makes sense it goes pretty deep uh, in into our evolutionary history for sure Absolutely. I think of the story of um, matrilineal elephant clans, and in some of the longer droughts, the only clans that survived had uh, matriarchs over 40 years old. And because they could remember back to the last drought, and they remembered you could walk 40 miles into the untracked desert, and they remembered the way there. I have no idea how, but they were able to lead their pack across sand, basically, with no other... You know, maybe they were navigating by stars. Who knows? But they found this ancient watering hole in the middle of a drought that sustained them. Um, so that is very evolution. It, it implies evolution did that. Yeah. <laughs> and also for social animals, the memory, yeah. the, the memory of where to find it um, was part of that. And the understanding that it, animals also have uh, rich emotional lives is something that we were kind of taught out of but now we're being taught back into that you can study the neuroscience the the emotion of of, of lots of lots of creatures they they have an emotional response to each other to us to the world around them that from a neurochemical perspective is is very similar to our own so that the idea that animals have an emo- emotional response to water is not so far fetched I on my website I've collected a a bunch of YouTube videos under uh, under on my blog under the title uh, "Water Displays," and it's a, a range of animals just having a damn good time in the water. So you, there's a gorilla just basically doing flash dance in a pool, and there's a, uh, a <laughs> splash some, dance, splash dance, <laughs> and uh, chimps uh, jumping around in a waterfall, and then basically Jane Goodall describes it as a, a meditative kind of state that they get in at the waterfall. And a whole range of, of mostly mammals, but just enjoying the water. And you can't help but describe it as an emotional response to the water. This reminds us of ourselves. Okay, so let's see. We're talking blue here, but I want to get green for a second. <laughs> I mean, this is supposed to be a green radio show, but also I'm talking like shrubbery, like money, dollars, <laughs> green. Uh, the Center for the Blue Economy. Yeah. Um, What's going on there? Uh, is this about how we can make a living from the oceans or probably more something more interesting than just that? Yeah, it's, it's recognizing that our waterways, our oceans, our lakes and our rivers are also a driver of our, our economy, whether it's, it's the extraction of, of um, resources for food uh, or uh, the shipping that goes on on the ocean and, and really kind of getting our heads around this idea that if we if we wreck the water, whatever waterway, we lose a big piece of our, our our economic well-being. My role there is to bring in the what I call the fourth E. So, it, ecology is important, uh, economics is important, education is important, but so is emotion, the science of emotion. And that water is good for our mental health means that uh, if we take care of our oceans, our lakes, our rivers. Uh, it's also a public health conversation, which has value. Um, now you, you can measure that. Of course, we have lots of conversations about the cost of healthcare. It's in the news every single day. What if the ocean is is medicine? What if our lakes and rivers and pools, uh, even our bathtub, is is medicine? That starts to shift the conversation about all four E's: that emotional connection, but also the ecological, the economic, and educational importance of the water that surrounds us. So that's my role there is to kind of um, always bring that fourth E, the emotion to the table. Uh, it's, I would say maybe there's less research and sometimes it's harder to quantify, but we can certainly qualify it. We can use the right words. And I don't think there's anybody who would argue that a healthy waterway in your town is not emotionally appealing. Makes life, just makes life better. Absolutely. If you just joined us on Planet Watch, we're talking with Wallace J. Nichols. He's a biologist and author of uh, several books, including Blue Mind, which uh, has been on the bestseller list, I think in the New York Times bestseller list for a long time. You can see it in, you know, passing through the airport bookstore (laughs) with all those other big books. And um, you've probably, you know, gotten lots of speaking invitations. What do you think the cumulative impact has been of this conversation you started on conservation or this preserving of these waterways? I th- I'm not sure how you, you measure cumulative impact of a conversation. However, uh, anecdotally, I hear 
daily from people who say that these ideas have uh, changed their view, changed the way they work, changed the way they live. They may be designers and architects, they may be educators, parents, they may be um, people who work in healthcare, uh, in hospice, um, people who work in pediatrics, work with uh, kids with limited range of, of mobility. They realize that getting kids into the water is, is good for their bodies and their, their minds. Um, so I would say m my work is more of a nudge than a revolution. It's a reminder of things that many people know but have um, been talked out of or have forgotten. And just a reminder that if, if you're having a really rough day, get in the water. Uh, if you have writer's block or some kind of creative block, find some water. Uh, if you got somebody you're kind of sweet on and you want to get a little closer to them, take a walk by the water. Um, just reminders of things that we, we all kind of know. So as a cumulative impact, I think the cumulative impact is just a lot of little nudges and um, people share that, share those nudges. And so there's, so there's a, vi a virality to it, I guess you could say. Absolutely. And I want to remind our listeners, if you'd like to enter the conversation, it's radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. If you have a question for Wallace J. Nichols, he's here live in the studio for a bit longer. So I always recommend getting your questions in early and not waiting till the last two minutes because then we might not have time. So again, that's radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. Yeah, a couple of interesting bodies of water that you can go swim in for a slightly different experience by the way are places like mono lake and the great salt lake in utah they are so heavy with dissolved salts that the density of the water is greater than you know seawater or lake water so you actually kind of almost like sit up in the water you're still floating but less of you is submerged and more of you is above the water. And it's a very interesting experience. I also noticed on Mono Lake, I need to test this more experimentally, but it was much easier to skip rocks, just do awesome <laughs> rock skipping. I'm pr pretty damn good rock skipper anyway, but on Mono Lake, it was just incredible. And I, my theory is that it was because of all those dissolved salts in the water and increasing the density of the water. I'm not sure. I have to do a little you physics. You never know. Yeah, no. <laughs> that's a great segue into this it's a phenomenon that's getting more and more popular is these, these float tanks or float therapy mm -hmm. float spas we have a couple new ones in Santa Cruz and they're popping up all over the world and it's basically uh, just a you know a thousand pounds of Epsom salt dissolved in a, a small amount of water so when you get in there you float like a cork and the air the water and your body are all the same temperature there's no light there's very little sound and so you close the hatch and you just um well, some people freak out, but you, you, the idea is that you completely chill and it's uh, the most nothing that you've ever experienced in your life, which allows your brain to move into a, a different state. Um, and some people have really profound, uh, profoundly relaxing experiences or profoundly insightful and creative experiences and they get out and they, they write music or they have breakthroughs with their work or in, their, in their lives. And uh, it's... Um, you know, it's, it's catching on in, in this in more and more anxious world that we live in. We need to be able to get away, and nature is the best. But when you're, if you're stuck in, in a city and getting, you know, out to Mono Lake or, or hiking a, a ridge trail is, is a little bit trickier, finding a float center to get you through the week is, is an option. You can do it in your own bathtub, too, yeah. if you have a deep enough one. I was thinking about, um, you know, the recent stories where we had these huge hurricanes and floods and how many people have moved to be near the ocean for obviously benign reasons. We love to be having an ocean view or to go to the beach. And now, you know, sometimes it feels like water is not our friend, especially with what's happening with sea level rise and hurricanes. There were so many floods how do we not see water as um, a scary, dangerous thing now that we've kind of messed things up? I think respect is important and understanding that water wins, the ocean wins. The ocean will keep coming and it will keep eroding our coast. The rivers will be moving and rising and falling and, and, and taking whatever you put in their way along with them. So a huge amount of respect for, for nature, for our, our wild waterways is is number one uh, moving back we're 
we are going to be systematically backing up. The communities that figured that out and left a wide buffer are going to fare the best. Uh, that front row where people want to be as close to the water as possible will always carry a premium with it. Um, that premium actually will help fund the retreat that is, is ahead um, if we're able to do it in a, in a thoughtful way. The water will make it happen no matter what. It, the storms, uh, the, the rising seas, uh, you know, the, the flooding rivers, will, they'll move us out of the way uh, if we don't do it ourselves. And so there's that, you know, that, you know, living with the water. Um, and in the face of these catastrophes, what I've seen is people are pretty resilient. They come back quickly and they need that water when it calms to calm themselves. So right after Hurricane Sandy, I went and helped with some of the, the cleanup and I saw people right back on the beach after they just lost everything with their shirts off, walking in the sand, just processing their anxiety. So they relied on that ocean that just took everything away to help them get through a, a, a horrific period of their lives. So it's, it's both and it reconciling that uh, the ocean can take everything away, including your life, everything you own, but it also can give you that feeling of peace and, solace, and freedom. Solace or consolation. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Such an interesting contrast. Now, you are in the process of writing another book, which I wanted to give fair time to, and on the time we have left, I want you to talk about the new research and book you're writing. Yeah, so Blue Mind was somewhat descriptive of this your brain on water idea and brought in neuroscience and psychology and, and some even some art and literature. And the next book, is, as a follow-up, is kind of prescriptive in that it describes how we can put Blue Mind into action at every age throughout our lives, from birth through death. So the, the name of the book is Live Blue, sort of like living, living your life, uh, a waterful life. Uh, and the subtitle is The Seven Ages of Water. Uh, which I, I borrow from William Shakespeare's Seven Ages of Man. He's not uh, around to sue you, it's okay. No, with credit, with full <laughs> citation. And uh, it's a nice framework to, to look at a human life cycle and look at how water can make our lives better, uh, make us more productive and happier from birth all the way through the end of our lives. You want to take us through those seven stages and what you have to say about them, you or is that giving it away? Let's do it. No, and you don't have to read the book and spend <laughs> oh, the no. money. But uh, no. No, there'll be a lot more detail in the book. But um, the sneak preview. Here. Yeah, a little sneak preview. You heard it so first. On I don't Watch. tell anybody. I'm about to. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Spoil so you know, it all begins with birth. Of course, actually, it begins with conception, which uh, is a watery affair usually, and then we we all spend about the first nine months of our lives in the dark underwater. I don't know if you guys remember that, but it was awesome. Don't. And, and it's, it's, uh, it's quiet, it's aquatic, but then we, we come out into the world. Um, if you're lucky enough to have had a water birth, or if your mom uh, participated in a water labor, that's a, a, a calmer experience. Um, nevertheless, you can quickly learn to swim as an infant. There are infant swim programs. And this idea of water parenting is a really good idea to give, give young kids uh, immediately uh, confidence in the water because three quarters of the planet is water. So being confident and competent in the water is a good idea. The next stage I call play um, because it's very playful, our childhood. Uh, play is really good for proper brain development. Um, the more dimensions we can play in, not just two-dimensional screens, but three-dimensional reality. We make mental maps. We learn how to find our way home based on the way the world feels rather than just the way it looks on a screen. And just playing and mucking around in the world uh, is a good idea. Falling down in water hurts less. So playing, uh, trying new moves. I used to jump my bike off a ramp into a, a body of water and get to try different aerial maneuvers on my bike without fear of the gravity breaking things. That so smart. <laughs> water and play go together very nicely. 
Um, I like to say, you know, balloons are fun, but water balloons are a real party. <laughs> and uh, you can say the same thing about slides. A slide is fun, but a water slide is super duper fun. And I watched these little teeny, they were really just three. I think they were three and a half. And there was a fountain at this party and someone gave them balloons and they just lined <laughs> up and they kept filling the balloons. <laughs> they weren't throwing them. They were just simply this fascinated <laughs> moment of just like, I'm going to fill this balloon with water and then I'm going to squirt it over here. I'm going to fill it back up. Yeah. And it's the whole party, that's all they did. Of course, a classic <laughs> image from humanity. If you were going to show aliens in outer, far outer space, uh, something about humanity, it's it's little kids squealing with delight, splashing around in water, you know, yeah. at the edge of the ocean, or just by a pond, or yeah, pool. or a popping open the fire hydrants in a in an urban hot city summer day, and the kids just coming and just playing in the gushing water coming out of those fire hydrants. Or I asked the director of the science museum in Phoenix. Uh, what's the most popular exhibit? And she said, without hesitation, that one. And she pointed to this contraption of, of gears and pipes with water flowing through it. And she said, just that by far is the most popular place and on the, this hu huge facility that they, ha they have. And so playing in water is, is, is really important, not just for kids, for all of us, for our en entire lives. You want to you wanna just make your day a little happier if you're having a bad one, just go play in the water. Just go splash around. And so birth, play, and then we go into the middle ages that I call the lover, the fighter, and the justice. The lover is when we fall in love with ideas, with special places, with our planet, uh, with people, with those around us. And then we fight for what we love. And if, if what we love is water, uh, watery places, lakes, rivers, uh, and and people that we spend time with on and near those those watery places, then we're going to take better care of that. If what we love are the these ideas, uh, the advocacy for these wild places, then we're going to fight as advocates. And if you're a fighter, you're going to get hurt. So you need that water to keep you coming back, to keep you resilient. So water plays a role in both the falling in love as well as the standing up for and, and fighting for places and ideas. Just have to mention at this juncture, the water protectors in the heartland of North America uh, fighting uh, to uh, stop the Keystone XL pipeline. There is one more opportunity for that in Nebraska where they're making rulings on whether they're going to hold two-way route that the company building the pipeline does not want to do or whether they're going to let that company sway them to do their preferred much more destructive route. So anyway, the, the, the water protectors are real heroes. A whole lot of them have gotten hurt bad. That's true. And uh, anyway. Uh, well, it's so. almost where we are as a species too, that mm -hmm. we either have to stand up and fight for the blue part of our planet and mm -hmm. all the other parts or like the plaintiffs in that lawsuit, there may not be a future. So yeah. it's not really an option <laughs> anymore. Yeah. And I, I just, just the reminder that if, if you are listening, you're probably a fighter. Uh, don't burn out. Don't let yourself burn out. You are at your best when you are calm, cool, and collected, where you're creative, you're collaborative, you're connected to your allies, and you feel good, you feel strong. We, we, will, we will burn ourselves out because we, we love the water so much. So that's a, a, just a reminder, another one of those nudges to, to keep, your, um, keep your cool, keep Thank your blue you. mind. And yeah. we want to remind people you can still join the conversation. If you have a question for Wallace J. Nichols here on Planet Watch, radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. And, and you could maybe call in and leave a message if you want, and we'll get it in here into the air room. There was lovers and fighters and then uh, something else. Then the justice. That's a big, long middle age that we're all kind of in right now where you, you're meant to be, you're asked to be responsible, creative, uh, and just always productive. And that's, that's the long middle age of our lives where, again, water can help you uh, keep, keep your keep your wits about you, um, be responsible and, and keep coming back to be, to carry the, carry the day, whether it's in your, in your business, whether it's in your organization, your household, um, you're, you are the justice, you're making decisions and they need to be good ones, uh, on the fly every moment of every day. So you're carrying the responsibility and that's, those, that's the biggest of the ages, uh, typically in, in a typical human, human life. But then that, that's followed with what I call ebb and flow, which is 
when we get knocked back, when we get hit hard, when we start to feel gravity, when our, our knees and our joints start to not do the things they used to do. And um, we need water therapeutically. So whether it's for our physical or our mental health, water takes on a new role uh, as gravity starts to really feel heavier. And um, getting in the water and walking some laps or swimming may be a, a better form of uh, you know, exercise and, and may keep our mobility uh, intact as, as we age. Um, the last and, and seventh and least popular age is, is death, of course. And we often request to be uh, remembered by the water. People leave clear directions to have their ashes scattered or to have people gather uh, in memorial service by the water, whether it's a, a surf paddle out or scattering ashes on a river. Um, and why do you think we do that? Why do we want that as our, uh, for our loved ones to remember us there? I, th I think it's wonderful to think while you're alive that your last convening moment will be beautiful, that there will be water and music. And to put that in writing and just leave it someplace in a, in a file cabinet perhaps or in a, a document and know while you're alive that you, you've mandated that, that one last little party and that in your memory, the people you care the most about are, are going to be required to grab their surfboards and paddle out no matter what's going on in their lives or gather by the water um, and, and toss your, your ashes onto the water and sing a few songs together. I think there's something really enjoyable about ha knowing that you, you left that little message uh, for that event. So that's, I think that's part of it. But for the living, it's also uh, getting together and, and feeling this blue mind feeling together. Uh, it, it strips away the distractions, uh, anxiety decreases, and we connect to each other. Reconciliation can happen. Uh, and often when we lose someone, there's some form of reconciliation that has to go on uh, with, with uh, colleagues and, and family members. Um, so I think being by the water facilitates that as well. Hmm. For all of you listening elsewhere in the world, you might be interested. Uh, we had a paddle out memorial ceremony that was just awesome a few weeks ago for the great surf legend Jack O'Neill here of Santa Cruz. I was out there for that. We had the best of both worlds. It was foggy and then it was clear. It was just an exquisite day. Uh, and you know, I just realized, and I don't know if Jason, our engineer, is listening, but should have arranged for our outro music on this show to be Handel's water music. <laughs> so there you go, Jason. If you can dig that up for us, we can play that instead of Planet Water. Yeah, or you could have a... some surf music. We'd accept that <laughs> oh, as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, we could do that. Surf guitar. Wipeout, yeah. maybe. <laughs> the Ventures. Well, yeah. Jack, Jack lived, uh, uh, he lived blue, right? You could say that from, from, his, from the youngest ages when he dealt with anxiety in school as a school kid, the ocean was his balm. Uh, and then all through his... You know, young adult and an adult, and then into his latter years, water was in involved in all of the ways we've just talked about, all the way through the end of his life and the memorial service, which I think set a record for the number of people paddling out uh, at anyone's uh, memorial service. And just in case you're listening in Ohio um, and you don't know, Jack O'Neill was the inventor of the wetsuit and it enabled people to surf year round instead of just in the warmest parts of the Pacific in the yeah. summer. And in and, uh, and conversations I had with Jack uh, at his house, I think I convinced him that by uh, developing the wetsuit, wetsuit medicine probably saved more lives than just, just about any other pharmaceutical on the planet, given all of maybe the anxiety, uh, depression, stress, that uh, reduction that was facilitated by people getting in the water. He liked that idea. He thought that, that was not something he had, he had thought about wetsuit medicine, but um, he is the, um, the inventor of, of wetsuit medicine. And it's a good thing because I talked to some old surfers and they said they used to wear leather wetsuits, <laughs> which sounds horrible, or wool. They used to wear wool in like union suits. And I think they made them uh, at the beginning, they made them out of pieces of tires yeah. or something. <laughs> rubber, just stripped, stripped rubber, yeah. <laughs> and then they had a big bonfire on the beach because yeah. otherwise, you know, you could only surf for about five minutes before <laughs> hypothermia set in. So yeah. it's so interesting how many people, you know, have um, made their life's work, something to do with the ocean, whether they're into fishing or 
you know, they just like to river raft. And if you're listening in Ohio, of course, there's some beautiful rivers in Ohio. Mm-hmm. And North Carolina, too. And North Carolina. The new river. The new river. The new second river. oldest yeah. river in the world. That's right. <laughs> the oldest yeah. river is the new river. <laughs> Love that. I used to live near the new river uh-huh. in a little town that no one's ever heard of except the people who live there called Mouth of Wilson, Virginia. Oh, I, yeah. I've been on the new river in three states, North Carolina, Virginia, and West Virginia, and it flows north, just like the oldest river in the world, the Nile, which also flows north. So, hmm, what's up with that? It's a great river. <laughs> used to, I kayaked it when I was in grad school in North Carolina, so uh-huh. we, have, we share the love of the new, I yes. suppose. And so, a big shout out to the listeners in Chapel Hill who are listening to Planet Watch right now. We're really happy you're taking this program because um, it's about everybody from all parts of the planet trying to care for our planet. And I'm really appreciative of your work, Jay, because you really shine a light and remind us of our relationship to the water. Before we came on air, you had a pretty unique idea that people could actually have, just like they have a water birth, they could actually like die in the water. How does that how do you do that? Yeah, that, I, guess <laughs> I want to be pushed off a cliff yeah. personally. <laughs> Drowning's not supposed to be really pleasant. And but no, no one maybe. really wants to send their elders <laughs> over the cliff except in that Norseman silly movie that's out. But. Yeah, so, you know, I think that's the most, maybe the provocative idea in this next book is that, you know, we could, what if, what would a water death look like? And if you um, knew that it was coming, you knew that your end was near and you were in your final days or hours, Rather than to have that happen on a on a bed, what if you could float in uh, in some some salty water with perhaps with the people you love in the water with you or around you, and just have that passage be calm or or smoother or more relaxing, and uh, so the the same technology, if you will, that allows us to do water births uh, and is portable as well, could be available for what I would call water death. And it's a it, just an idea, but I would like to sign up for that and have that Yeah, available. me too. And, I uh, imagine people have done that. There yeah. must be people who've done that. Yeah. Maybe there's a culture where that's a regular thing and we just don't know it. it, it may, probably in a Pacific culture where it's already warm there. Yeah, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, why not go out the way you came in? Yeah, <laughs> well, not? not exactly the way, but you yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> Similar methods. <laughs> Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it opens up all kinds of provocative possibilities, I think, and and uh, I think it's worth exploring. And I, I've since I wrote Blue Mind, I've been invited to several hospice conferences, and uh, uh, not not because I'm an end of life care expert, but because this idea of water does resonate so much uh, in end of life stages, and the doctors and nurses who. Uh, work in hospice were very interested are very, still very interested in the role of water and beyond you know water death I think uh, just asking someone towards the end of their life what was your water grandpa grandma what is the water you loved that you fought for and do you want to see it again do you want, do you want me to get you there and then if the answer is yes let's figure that out it may be logistically complicated but Let's do it. Let's um, let's let's go there, and I think that would probably be one of the most beautiful moments of everybody's life who would be involved in that. And so that's really the the message there in that end of life um, moments. Um, ask those questions. Get back to the water. And if you work in hospice, it's a it's a high stress uh, uh, job, and mm-hmm. you need to take care of yourself. So what's your water? And are you spending enough time in it or near it? And the families of, of the person who's passing, they're going to undergo a lot of stress and anxiety. What's their water? And can you remind them to spend more time there and mourn and grieve, uh, scream underwater if that's your thing? And, uh, and so in, at that, that age, you know, the, the seventh age, water plays this really important role. It was a really important thing for my mother to get down to Big Sur one more time because she lived there for 30 years. And so Hmm. anybody listening in Big Sur, (laughs) that last trip meant a lot, even though it was short and had to be cut shorter. Hmm. It was um, important to sit there at Nepenthe and look out the window. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you know, there are also things we can talk about on future shows uh, about the role of water in saving the world, you know, 
techni technically, I mean, the biggest task humanity faces really is getting excess carbon out of the atmosphere. Not only stopping emitting it, but pulling it out of the atmosphere. I have a feeling water is going to play a big role Definitely. in that. Now, it already is uh, to its detriment, namely the acidification of the oceans by dissolving uh, carbon, uh, you know, from carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But, but I think uh, more advanced, good technical means of solving our problem of excess carbon overloading in the atmosphere could could involve oceans and water. And so, I think uh, Tommy has a question oh, for you yeah. Hi, before Jay. we go. Hi, um, <laughs> briefly, I was just wondering if there were other places like forests that you think people have similar connections to, because I live in the forest and I feel yeah. like I have a similar connection to where I live. Yeah, so that there's a quite a, a bit of work being done in what researchers call green space, which is basically a euphemism for plants and forests. So green space and blue space are both really... Good, good for our, our minds and our bodies. Uh, the water got kind of left out of, of this conversation until recently when we started this work. Uh, but yes, to, to forests. Now, now I feel like I'm leaving forests out. Sorry, forests. There's um, forest bathing now in <laughs> yes. Japan is like a big thing. So it hasn't really been overlooked. Um, so, yeah, so we do that. We know that intuitively. Too. Get your green, get your blue. <laughs> uh, the best is both. So a forest with a, a creek running through it or a river or a lake is kind of the, the, the best of, of both worlds, I would say. Um, That's I, why I love living here. Yeah, exactly. Well, we're surrounded by lots of green and lots of blue and pretty darn fortunate, yeah. I have to say. Well, yeah. we want to thank you so much. Um, Wallace J. Nichols, our guest here, author of Blue Mind and soon to be author of Live Blue. It's really a pleasure to have you on the program. My, my pleasure. Yeah, mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Wallace. And uh, stick around uh, for the next couple minutes of our show, and then afterwards we can talk some more. But uh, I have to announce a big sky event coming up this week, uh, the best meteor shower of the year. Now, everybody knows the August Perseid meteor shower. That's a good one. It tends to be best after midnight, like many or most meteor showers. This one coming up, though, the Geminids. The shooting stars appear to fan out from the constellation of the Gemini twins near Orion. They're good all night long, you know, from dark onward. And you might do better if you're looking, say, after 10 p.m., but uh, all night long, uh, you can expect an average of at least one minute, one meteor per minute. You know, 60, 70, 100 an hour. Sometimes you get brief bursts of several in one minute. And, uh, you know, you say, where do you look in the sky? Well, I mean, you don't have to be looking at Gemini. You don't have to know where it is because they're all over the sky. It's just that if you follow the trails of them back to where they came from, they all kind of converge at this so-called radiant point in the two stars, Castor and Pollux, the Gemini twins. So it'll be peaking this Wednesday, the 13th. And pretty good, uh, you know, the nights before and after, so 12, 13, 14. Midweek, here in, uh, on the central coast of California, it's going to be severe clear. Uh, we need some rain, some water coming down sometime soon. But okay, this week, let's take advantage of the clear skies. And wherever you are, look up at night, the Geminid meteor shower. So, um, can I suggest that you... Enjoy that meteor shower while floating in, in some water. Hey, that sounds yeah. like a plan. All right. Hey, we can do that together. <laughs> you got any offers for you? <laughs> so, uh, hey, thanks to everybody here, uh, Rachel, uh, Tommy, Wallace, and uh, uh, everybody out there all over the country and the world for listening. And keep an eye on the sky. This is Joe Jordan. And I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. Thank you so much for listening to Planet Watch. We'll be back with you again next week.